From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is David Novak. David is the retired chairman and CEO of Yum Brands Incorporated, one of the world's largest restaurant companies with over 45,000 KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell restaurants, and more than 1.5 million employees in over 135 countries and territories. Prior to leading Yum Brands, David held senior management positions at Pepsi-Cola Company, including chief operating officer and executive vice president of marketing and sales. David retired from Yum Brands in 2016 and went on to become the founder of David Novak Leadership, a digital leadership development platform he created to help people become the best leaders they can be. He's also the host of the Top Ranked Leadership Podcast, How Leaders Lead with David Novak. And if all this weren't enough, David is also the best-selling author of several critically acclaimed books, including two that I've read and thoroughly enjoyed. His number one New York Times bestseller, Taking People With You, The Only Way to Achieve Big Things, and The Education of an Accidental CEO, Lessons Learned from the Trailer Park to the Corner Office. David's been recognized as one of the world's 30 best CEOs by Barron's, one of the top people in business by Fortune Magazine, and one of the 100 best performing CEOs in the world by Harvard Business Review. In this episode of Blue Sky, David Novak explains why he thinks leadership is so important that he's devoted much of his life to studying it and working with others to improve their own leadership skills. He talks about the role that optimism plays in leading and motivating people, what he looks for in new hires, and describes the remarkable work he's doing with his podcast and leadership training nonprofit. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. David Novak, thank you for joining me on the Blue Sky Podcast. Bill, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. So, David, I'm going to start where you've had an incredibly successful career, and you could have done anything in retirement, but you chose to profile great leaders and teach aspiring ones. So my question is, why do you think leadership is so important that you would devote what many would consider your quote-unquote retirement years to doing this work? Well, first of all, I, I think leadership is a privilege. You know, when you have the opportunity to, to lead others, it's, it's, it's a unique privilege and, a, and, it's a, and it's a great responsibility. Unfortunately, a lot of people get in leadership positions and they don't know how to lead. They don't know how to take people with them. They don't know how to motivate people, to inspire them, make people feel good. And, you know, and feel good about what they do when they go to work. And, and I, I think as a result, a lot of research will show you that people are very frustrated with the, the leaders that they are supposed to follow. They, they don't feel like they're, they're getting developed. And uh, so, you know, my view is, is that if I can pass on anything that I've learned over the years to help other people become better leaders, it'll have a cascading effect and it will help more people in, in, in the world. 
The other thing is, is that I've never seen anything be good for very long without a good leader. Right. You know, I always say, show me a good leader and I'll show you a good business. You know, you might get lucky one year, yeah. but you're not going to get lucky on a sustainable basis. So I, I, I feel like if I can help people become the best leaders they can be, then they'll be able to get better performance, which will lead to more growth, not only for themselves, but for other people. So, you know, I think the world is in desperate need of, 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 of more leadership. And uh, I'm just trying to do a small, my small part in trying to help things along. Well, you're doing a big part. And uh, I know I personally appreciate it. Your, your personal story is an interesting one and a little bit less traditional from a lot of folks who would wind up in the kind of positions you've had. And I think it's always interesting to learn the formative experiences of someone who's gone on to great achievement. You describe yourself in one of your books as a quote unquote trailer park kid. And because of your dad's job, this stat blew me away. You moved 32 times and lived in 23 states by seventh grade. Can you tell us how that turned you or helped form the kind of person that you are, that kind of upbringing? Well, you know, my father was a government surveyor, and and that's why we 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 moved so often. We moved every every three months, and my mother would check me into schools, and she would say, "David, you better make friends because we're leaving." And uh, <laughs> you know, I learned that you were basically one friend away from happiness, no matter where you were at. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think it really had a huge impact on my life and and my my career and the way how I. Uh, way I lead because I, I really developed a, a very keen sense for, for people. I'm, I'm, I don't know. It's one of my, probably my, one of my greatest strengths is I can kind of go into new situations, size things up yeah. and really understand, you know, what somebody's all about. And, you know, I always say the formula for success is, is, uh, in business is get your people capability, right. Then you satisfy more customers, then you make money. Yeah. And too many people start start out thinking about how to make the money, but not how to get there. And and I think, you know, my ability to uh, understand people, you know, select the right people and uh, learn how to, to, to make friends with the right people, I think has helped me throughout my life. And in your book, The Accidental CEO, another thing it seems you took from that upbringing is a resistance to and, and sort of a disdain for stereotyping because- some would hear what I just described and say, oh, he's a trailer park kid, and that's a negative. You described it actually was kind of an amazing way to grow up and a positive. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I mean, the typical stereotype for trailer, it's not a trailer park kid. It's like it's trailer park trash. Okay. Yeah, right. You know, it's, it's and, you know, that's the, that's you, you were being kind there. And, <laughs> but I never really got that. I thought that everybody lived in trailer parks and that's what I did. And I never saw myself as anything other than just a, a, a normal, normal human being. But, you know, as I got older, I realized that my background was not necessarily uh, desirable by a lot of people's, uh, uh, assessment of what it would take to be successful. But I always say I, I succeeded because of my upbringing, not, not in spite of it, because, you know, I had loving parents who wanted me to achieve the American dream. You know, I had great sisters and, you know, we, we, we were very, very close. You know, when you look, when you travel in a trailer, Bill, you know, you end up all sitting on the so- same sofa, you know, clumped together, watching, uh, watching television. And no matter how big the house is that I have now, when we get together as a family, we sit on top of each other. <laughs> and you better get along. <laughs> My wife says we clump. It's interesting to hear David's positive take on his upbringing. 
Living in trailer parks and moving constantly could have been seen as a hardship. David describes his early life as a positive and that these circumstances helped him size people up and make friends. I also really like his thoughts here about starting in business with a focus on people, not making money. If you get your people right and you treat them well, they'll take care of your customers and your customers will help you make money. The order of things here is really important. I next asked David about the role of optimism in leadership and specifically whether he'd ever met a successful leader who wasn't an optimist. I don't think so. I mean, people manifest their optimism in different ways. You know, I I believe that, you know, positive energy lifts people up. Negative energy brings people down. I looked, I tried to surround myself with people who had that positive uh, energy and have the Eeyores of the world go somewhere else and make people miserable. Um, I think the first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. And then as a part of that, Napoleon Bonaparte said the second responsibility is to create hope. You know, it's one thing to go in and define reality and tell everybody it's going to rain and that, man, we're really in trouble if we don't change. But, you know, what inspires people is the hope part of the equation. You know, but if we do these things, here's how we're going to be able to win together. And, and I think it's that hope that keeps people going. And that's why I love your Optimism Institute. I think, uh, you know, in, in this world where we have so much divisiveness, so much, uh, so many haters on 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 each side, or if you want to pick a side, you know, it's kind of nice to think there's somebody like you out there trying to get people to think about the importance and value of of optimism. But you're right. I I have never ever seen a seen someone be very successful without being able to turn the corner and provide hope and optimism in terms of what can get done. Well, and one of the things you wrote about, and thank you for the kind words, I appreciate it. One of the things you you wrote about in one of your books is that mindset is a choice. And it's, I think it's an important thing to talk about because I've talked to some people who say, well, you're either a glass half full or glass half empty person. It's sort of like you're, you're, either, you're either born a lefty or a righty, an optimist or a pessimist. And you would, you would suggest it's a choice. And in one of your books, you gave a great example, I thought, of a guy who's a works for a shoe company and he comes to a new market and in this particular part of the world, no one's wearing shoes. And that person could either say, we're toast. We're never going to sell. People don't wear shoes here. Another could say, what a huge opportunity. <laughs> We've got, yeah. we could sell a ton of shoes here because nobody's got them. Can you talk about that mindset as a choice? Well, you know, I think uh, that's what a leader's job is, is uh, to do. It's to define the opportunity. It's very easy to, 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 to define what the problem is, but I think, you know, the, the, the really the best leaders not only have a good understanding of what the problem is, uh, then they, they, they develop the, the approach and the solutions to, to, to solve that problem. And, 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 and that leads you to the optimism that, that you can really grow a business. I mean, you think about it. Bill, just think of all the great businesses that have been founded on the on the basis of of of, of solving problems. And uh, right, you know, I just read a great book recently by Yuri Levine, who I did a podcast with. He's the, he he uh, founded Ways, and the book is called "You Know Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution." You know, and you know, I I think that's the that, that uh, that's my that's always kind of been my approach to really finding big ideas. But you know, the the real Optimism comes from once you have that problem, man, just think about what will happen if you solve that problem. 
and it, you know, just think of how many lives that you can change for the better. And, and I think that's, 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 that's the exciting thing about life and, and business. You know, one thing God gave us is, the, is free will, you know, you know, we have the, we have the opportunity to, to, uh, to decide, you know, how we're going to think and nobody can really take that, uh, away from us. There's a simple maxim here that I think makes a ton of sense. David says that the leader's job is not just to identify the problem, it's to define the opportunity. What inspires people, he says, is the hope part of the equation. And David asserts that our outlook is a choice, that we own our ability to decide how to think. Getting back to our conversation, I knew that providing recognition in the workplace was perhaps the most consistent and important hallmark of David's wildly successful career. I asked him about this and added my observation that while people often see the person at the top being responsible for thinking big thoughts and charting grand strategies, the best leaders get the little things right too, like recognizing the work of others. I asked David to talk about an incident early in his career that got him thinking about the importance of rewarding a job well done. You tell a story in one of your books uh, of the Engelbert Humperdinck story, and I think you should never miss an opportunity to say the name Engelbert Humperdinck. It's probably flying <laughs> over the heads of half the audience who's too young to remember who that was. I do. Um, could you maybe tell that story and then how you started to think about the importance of recognition? Uh, well, you know, I I, I uh, worked a couple of jobs when I was just out of college. I was an advertising copywriter, and at night I worked in a hotel. And, uh, you know, I checked in Engelbert Hump, Humperdinck and his team, and I thought, man, I, this is going to be a big payday for me. I took all of the suitcases up there, and, you know, I, I, it was like, you know, I thought, man, I'm going to get a big tip. I, and I got stiffed. I didn't get anything. And I thought, please. <laughs> You know, I mean, here's this guy has all this money, all this fame, and he can't give a guy like me a, a couple bucks for, for taking his suitcases upstairs. And I'm telling you, it wasn't just one. It was a, a lot of them. But it kind of stuck with me. <laughs> you know, I think people need to be appreciative for what they do. And then I had many, many experiences throughout my business career that showed me the importance of that, and the, the value of that. So, you know, I've, I've always believed in, in the importance of, of showing appreciation to people who are getting uh, jobs done. You know, people leave careers or change jobs for two reasons. Number one, they don't get along with the, their boss. And number two, they don't feel appreciated for what they do. And you know, I think both of those are kind of tied together, you know, and, uh, you know, so I've, I have always tried to create an environment of appreciation and, and recognition. And in fact, you know, one of the concepts that I really teach and, and, and talk about in leadership is what I call purposeful recognition. You know, what are the behaviors that you know will drive performance in your business? Identify what those behaviors are and then recognize the heck out of them whenever you see them. And guess what will happen? You'll have more people do those behaviors because they know that's what you value. And it's a very common sense kind of approach, but man, it really does work. And one of the things about common sense is it's, it's not that common. People don't do it, you know, and, uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, but I, I think recognition is one of those things that that makes a lot of sense. And if you do it, I think it's your, your secret weapon in leadership. I agree. And it, it's surprising how hard it seems to be. And I think about, you know, 
a lot of leaders think that the feedback loop is going to be at the uh, the annual review or the the half year review. That's when I'm going to really tell someone how they're doing. And they tend to and folks tend to emphasize the negative as yeah. opposed to consistently sort of catching people doing the right thing and pu- calling it out and rewarding. It seems to me a lot more powerful than criticizing when they think things go wrong. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, spontaneous recognition is the best uh, way to recognize people. Number one, identify those behaviors that you know are important to your company and to your your team. Make sure that everybody knows about it, okay? And then when you see those, you know, recognize people when they do it. And, and do it on a spontaneous basis. I mean, I would be in a meeting sometime and somebody make a great presentation on how we could be more innovative and I get all excited about it. And I get up and I go into my office to get my recognition award, go back right in there and say, hey, you know, Sally just made a fantastic presentation and because of what she just showed us today, we're going to grow the heck out of our business. I want to give you this award and thank you very much for all you do and everybody clap and applaud and all that kind of good stuff. And, you know, it works. And then what I found is when the leader starts doing it, there's this concept called the shadow of leadership. Once you do something, everybody else does. Right. And so everybody in our organization really made recognition our, uh, one of our top behaviors because we we really believed that recognition was, was one of the behaviors that we wanted to drive because recognition dr- drives results. Sure. And so we, we really made it our number one cultural value that we had in our company. And what I find amazing, too, about some of these simple acts of recognition is just how efficient a use of a CEO's time this is. It doesn't take very long. That, that story you just told of, you know, walking over and grabbing a recognition award might have taken you 25 seconds. Right. <laughs> and the ripple effects and the long-term effects of everyone in that room and that person who will remember that you did that for years is phenomenal. Yeah, it travels like you can't believe. The ripple effect is a great way to describe it. I always talked about being a ripple maker, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. and, and I think that, I think that uh, it doesn't take that long. And when you're a leader, people watch what you do. You know, a lot of times people think you're judged by your intentions. No, you're judged by your actions. Yes. And, you know, and, and as, a, as a leader, when you, when you show appreciation, you know, uh, it, it's inspiring and, and it, 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 it gets other people to want to do the same kind of thing. So let's talk about ripple effects because, you know, many of us might lead a team of five, a company of a hundred at your height, at the height of your time at Yum Brands, I believe you were pushing 2 million employees, 1.6, 1.7 million employees in 120 countries, something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are staggering numbers. Yeah, it was a lot. Staggering yeah. numbers. How do, would you think about that sitting in your chair? How, how can you move the needle with that many people around the globe consistently? Yeah. Well, I think that you have to make your your culture your 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 number one focus. You know, I studied a lot of companies and a lot of leaders, Bill, and and you know, you would you, you I would go there to try to understand what processes they put in place to really drive the results that they got. But all the great companies, I don't care whether you're talking about Walmart or Home Depot, they they, they talked about their culture being the biggest difference yeah, and the thing that was most important and creating a culture where everyone counts. So what you try to do, and it's very hard to do, and I'm sure not of those one and a half million people at Young Brands, not everybody would necessarily feel this way, but as a leader, what you try to do is, is create a work environment where everyone is valued, valued for what they do and that everyone counts. 
And you do that by by identifying, again, those behaviors that you know are going to be critical to the success of your company. For us, we looked at our top 10% of our restaurants hmm. and we, we studied them and we, we identified the behaviors that, that, that led to the best results. It'd be things like a belief in all people, a customer focus. It was positive energy was one of sure. the big things. Sure. You know, recognition was one of the big things, accountability, teamwork. So those were the big things that we knew drove success in every restaurant. So what we did is we made those are the behaviors that we wanted to recognize all around the world. And every one of our teams around the world established that as the, the culture that we wanted to create and tried to drive it as deep in the organization as, as they could. And, you know, it's a never ending battle. Yeah. You know, it's not something that happens overnight. You got to stay after it. And, you know, there are always some people that you don't reach, sure. but, you know, we really created a, I think a, a, a high energy, high performance uh, work environment by focusing on the things that really matter. Well, and I think your example is particularly powerful because as I think about businesses generally, there aren't many that are tougher than the restaurant business in terms of day in, day out competition, low barriers to entry, you know, even even within a KFC, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, new products need to be coming out, new marketing campaigns. It's constant. So it seems to me it puts that much more of a premium on everything you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why I said people capability is the number one thing that you can really focus on. You know, you, you the restaurants that you go to, I'm sure the ones that where you get treated well. Yes. Okay. If you're not, if you're not treated well, you don't go back. Right. Okay. And I've seen a lot of restaurants that have mediocre food, get along. Okay. Because they at least have great people. Yep. Okay. And people will, you know, you know, great people make mediocre food taste even better. (laughs) Right. uh, It is really the, in the restaurant business, it's, it's the absolute key. And that's why we always said the restaurant general manager, whoever ran the restaurant, was really the critical person because they build the team that satisfies the customer. So if you have a great restaurant manager, you usually end up having a pretty damn good team because people want to work for that good person. If you walk into a restaurant and you see lethargy, you see people just standing around, all I have to do is meet the restaurant manager. Sure. And I'll know exactly why. If you see me conversely... If you see walk into a restaurant where there's high energy, people are hustling, people are making customers happy, they're smiling, whatever. When you meet that restaurant manager, you'll you'll know why, because they set that example. Absolutely. And that's true in almost every team, Bill. You know, I'm, every team really does kind of reflect the, the leader that they, they work with. David talks here about what he calls the shadow of leadership. From my own experience, I agree that people watch what their leader does. They key off that person's energy and respond to what they emphasize and reward. Listening to David, it's easy to understand how he was able to motivate such a huge workforce to deliver the kind of results he was looking for. And I think we all know what he's talking about when it comes to great service making a mediocre product better, or the type of energy that you can instantly feel when you walk into any business and quickly get a sense for how that place is being led. I next talked to David about something he mentioned in one of his books about worry. 
and how from his experience, 90% of the fears you worry about never come to be. And the 10% that do aren't as bad as you thought they'd be. Since it seems to me that worry can be a barrier to optimism, I asked him to reflect on this. I think I write about that in the, in the, in the context of going into new situations. You know, you always have to work through the anxieties. You know, we all have to figure out. I did that all the time. I, when you check into a new school, you have to work through the anxiety sure. of, of, of going into a, a new situation. And you'd have all these fears. But as it turned out, hey, people were pretty good and they're kind of rooting for you and things will work out OK. You know, and, you know, I think as leaders, you, you, you can't be blind to the problems that are Sure. Okay. And the potential things that could go wrong. You, you got to understand what they are. So you have a, you're dealing in, in, in realism. Okay. But you can't let those negative things paralyze you into inaction or paralyze you into a situation where you, you, you really can't move forward with, with confidence. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that, that kind of fear that, that holds you back is many times unfounded. Because, you know, once you take those first steps and start jumping into the, into the pool, okay, yeah, you might find that there's a shark in there or there's, you know, <laughs> but, but you'll figure out how to deal with that shark, okay, and get around that shark so you can go to the next point. But you got to get started um, and, and tackle each obstacle as, as they come along your way. And as I've been doing this work, David, I'm, I'm trying to pull out consistencies or threads that I see across many of the people I, I speak with and learn about. And one of them in optimistic people, one of them that I might not have thought of that absolutely applies to you from everything I know is the value of being a lifelong learner and the value of constantly working on self-improvement. And so today I'm talking to someone who has accomplished everything you could possibly imagine in business and other things. And, and yet still, you, you have a practice, for example, where you write an index card, what are you today? And what do you want to be tomorrow? I mean, you're just constantly learning. Can you talk about that? And, and, and do you agree with me that that's an important thing to maintaining a, a vital and optimistic mindset? Well, I think learning is, is critical. You know, in fact, I'm writing a book on learning right now. It's called, you know, it's, it's on active learning. You know, I started out thinking that, uh, uh, you know, being an avid learner was the number one trait that the best leaders have. Okay. And then I thought, well, you know, Tom Brady could learn how to throw a ball, but if he didn't, you know, put it to practice, okay, he wouldn't have thrown so many touchdowns. Okay. So it's really active learning. You got to learn, look around, find out what's going on and then apply it to your life and into your business. And, you know, so I'm in the midst now of writing a book on how, how to learn from things like your environment, how to learn to prepare, how to, how to learn by, you know, recognizing with purpose, you know, but I'm really focused in on that because I think learning is a critical thing. You know, I do all these podcasts, uh, with, with great leaders and, uh, and I've come to the conclusion, people always ask me, what, what traits do they have? You know, and, and I, I think that they have an uncanny combination of confidence and humility. Okay. The, the confidence comes, first of all, you're not going to follow someone. Okay. That you don't believe in. Okay. And, and so you got, you got to act like you're confident, even if you're not. Okay. But you got to give people a sense that they're, they're, they're going to win. Okay. And because that, that, 
you know, people will follow you if you, you do that. But then it's combined with humility. And what humility says is, I need you, okay? And I don't know everything, okay? And that, that humility says, says, hey, there's so much I need to learn and you can help me learn it. Yes. Okay? And together we can, we can win together. And so I think confidence and humility it's a unique combination because on the one hand you say, oh, you got to be confident. So I, I don't need any, you know, I can get it all done myself. No, you, you're confident because you, you, you know, you have the ability and you believe in where you're going and that inspires other people, but your humility gets everybody to want to work for you because you let them know you need them. Yes. And that's all a part of the learning process. You said in, in one of your books, and I'd never heard it described this way. You said, everyone you meet knows something that you don't know which I thought was a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, and, it, and it's true. I mean, you know, I don't know you that well, but if we sat down and we talked for an hour, I guarantee it to you, you'd tell me a lot of things that I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I'd have to teach David Novak, but I know that any extended conversation with him would be fun regardless. And speaking of fun, Ted Turner popped in my head when David said that while sweating out a decision to try something new, sometimes the most important thing is simply to get started. Back in the late 1990s, I was in charge of TBS, and a guy named Brad Siegel was running TNT. His network carried NFL games back then, and we both aired the NBA. The TV rights deals for both of these leagues were about to come up for renewal, and we all knew they'd be very expensive. As stewards of our businesses, Brad and I were worried about these potential costs and the uncertainty that would come in the outer years of these potentially long new contracts. When we met with Ted to share our concerns, we kept talking about the future, saying things like, in the future, we don't know what the value of these leagues will be, or in the future, we don't know if other technologies will be competing with cable, this sort of thing. We had just the anxiety about this decision that David describes. But when Ted had finally had enough, he cut us off. He leaned forward and he said, listen, when it comes to the future, we're just gonna have to be like Lewis and Clark. We'll know what it looks like when we get there. For now, we just have to start heading west. Ted was right. And now we're 25 years or so into that future. And today, the TV rights for these leagues are worth way more than we ever would have imagined. Now, back to our conversation and more about David's current efforts. Let's talk about the work you're doing because I, I think it's really remarkable. You've mentioned the podcasting and I, and I recommend uh, How Leaders Lead to anyone's listening, uh, where David sits down with serious accomplished leaders from all fields. Tom Brady, you mentioned, is on there. Peyton Manning. So you have athletes, you have business leaders, you have uh, the... The guy who runs the Savannah Bananas, which is near and dear to my heart, a baseball club. Um, but you also have uh, David Novak leadership. And I'd love for you to talk about that, why you're doing it, and then in particular how you're doing it, because you're providing this incredibly valuable information free of charge. Can you talk about how that all came about? Well, you know, my mission in life, my personal mission in life is to make the world a better place by developing better leaders. So what we did with you know, our, our family foundation is we created David Novak leadership and we have a, a, a number of programs 
that are designed to develop leaders at every stage in life. Like we have this program called Lead for Change, where I took the took uh, my book, Taking People With You, create a curriculum for uh, middle school and high school teachers. And they're teaching it to, to students who then apply the learnings to service projects. And that's why it's called Lead for Change. And we've reached, well, I think we have 15,000 teachers signed up this year and we've reached over, you know, I think well over 2 million students in the last 10 years, okay, where we've taught people this program. It's the largest privately funded leadership development program in the United States at middle schools and high schools. And then we, we found somebody who's doing something similar uh, in elementary schools where, you know, it's called, and they have a program called Global Game Changers. And, and we're working with them to help take that na- national, which is basically where you help uh, elementary schools kids understand what their, their, their unique talent is. That becomes their superpower. And that you, once you put your heart into it, you use that to ignite good. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a great program. And then for college students, we have the Novak Leadership Institute at the University of Missouri, where we have 12 accredited hours. And uh, I think the University of Missouri is looking at making leadership a requirement is one of the educational requirements at the school. Um, and I'm very excited about that. That hasn't happened yet, but that's what we're working towards. And then we created How Leaders Lead with David Novak to, to offer you know the, the podcast free. And also we're doing digital leadership training that we're offering free. Uh, we've got a program called Taking People With You. And then we've got one called Purposeful Recognition. Also going to do one on self-coaching. And also we're going to have one on learning where we're going to basically offer the, the content free to anyone that wants to learn how to be a better, better leader. Um, so, you know, uh, it's all of this is to really, you know, go back to what we started at, at the beginning is to, is to really make the world a better place by developing better leaders, help people get the skills that they need so that they can have a positive impact on, on their business, on their career, and, and more importantly for on other people. Incredible. So I, so back to learning something that you didn't know from someone, I didn't realize you were, you were going that young in, into school. So if, if we have someone listening today who either has a child at that age or a, you're a teacher listening, how, how can they find out more about getting these programs into schools? Because I know that's a huge challenge, that it can be hard to add curriculum into a school system. Yeah. I would go to David Novak Leadership, and then we have a full team that really can, you know, guide you through the through the process. But, you know, time is your most precious asset, you know, and that's that's the biggest obstacle we have in terms of teaching leadership in schools. It's like, oh, this is one more thing you're given a teacher to do. But it's amazing how many teachers want their kids to to be everything they can be and achieve their full potential, and they find the time to do this program, and and it's great. You know, I have one teacher from Houston because we do recognition at the end of the year for the service projects that the kids do. And she said, you know, these kids, and I did a zoom call with them. They're all dressed up in coat and tie and their nicest uh, dress and everything. And, and she said, she told me later, she said, these kids weren't the, the, the high school cheerleaders. They weren't the college court. They weren't the, the quarterbacks. They weren't the popular kids in the schools. These were the nerds. She, she said, but you know what? They, they, they developed so much self-esteem by doing this project and making a difference, it, you know, gave them confidence that they would have never, ever had. And, you know, I I think that's what happens when you learn how to be a leader. You know, leaders are not, 
they're not necessarily born. You can learn how to be a leader. You can learn how to take, you know, take people with you. And, 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 and when you can develop that skill with, and use the talents that you have, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty exciting because it, 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 it multiplies, which is what I know you're trying to do at your Institute there is get, exactly. you know, get a multiplication factor on, on, uh, optimism. It's just, if we're talking about ripple effects, though, you start with younger students like that and, and, and it influences themselves and their peers and their families and they get older and the, it's just a remarkable legacy that you're going to create with this work. And I, I, I'm sure you take pleasure in it and you should, it's, it's, it's really something. One of the things you uh, wrote about earlier in your own career, um, you were sent to some training yourself. And I, I found some of these lessons very interesting from Jack Byram, who was someone I had not heard of, who also trained Johnny Carson of all people. But he had a line, I think it was attributed to him. Don't look up, don't look down, look straight ahead. And he was referring to how you look at people. So don't, don't overly you know, look up to people necessarily above you in the hierarchy. Don't look down upon anybody below you. Look straight ahead. Can you talk about that? And also anything else you learned from Jack Byron? Because I have a sense he left a ripple effect that influenced you greatly. Yeah, I love that. I love that phrase. Don't look up. Don't look down. Always look straight ahead. And the context that I went to him was, is that I was like 28 years old and I was working with 40 year old people. And so the, 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 the company I work with sent me to him to learn how to demonstrate that I, you know, learn how to be more mature. Okay. To, you know, come off older <laughs> than what I really was. Okay. Yes. And he said that one way to do that was, you know, to never, you know, realize that people, nobody's any better than you. Okay. Nobody, you're not any better than anybody else. When you deal with people, look at them straight ahead. And, and, uh, you know, I, that always stuck with me because everybody is equal. You know, you know, there's nobody that's any better than anybody else. But one of the things he did, he said, David, you know, you want to project leadership. You want to project maturity. I want you to spend a week just watching people, watching people who are leaders. Okay. Watching people on television that are leaders, watching people around you that are leaders. And, and observe the characteristics and the traits that they have. Okay. And, you know, and then think about those and let's come back together and talk about it, you know? And that was very instructional for me because what I, what you realize is that, is that the, the leaders you really admire the most, they don't try too hard. Right. They, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, they're confident in what they have. They're not trying to prove anything to you. They're comfortable in their own skin. Yeah. They, they, time is their value. You know, they, mm -hmm. you know, they don't work on somebody else's clock. You know, they, they take the time to figure out how to get things done. But anyway, I learned a lot doing that. And he was a great teacher. He, he's the one that taught me the three by five card that you talked about where every year I write out, you know, what do I appreciate about who I am today and how can I be even more effective tomorrow? Okay. And, you know, um, but it all comes down to self-awareness. What, what Jack helped me do was really understand who I am and how I could really, uh, develop as, as a leader to project more maturity. For example, I, one of the reasons why I got promoted so young was I was wildly enthusiastic and passionate about what I did. Okay. Yes. But after I went through this process with him, with him was, I realized I needed to temper my enthusiasm. It needed to be tempered. 
Okay. And I need, I couldn't be quite as, as, you know, wild as I was. Okay. In terms of tone it down, Dave, tone it down. Tone it down. Okay? <laughs> those are the things you learn as you get older and you mature and, and, but he, but he helped me understand. That. Well, and I think, I think that don't look down too is so important. I, I was fortunate in a leadership position. I worked at Turner Broadcasting and the company grew so quickly. We wound up having this crazy sort of hodgepodgey campus in Atlanta and as a result, when someone came to meet with me, my assistant would have to walk to this two buildings over to greet the person in reception, walk them back. They'd interview with me maybe for a job. Then she'd walk them back. And the first thing I would do is sit down with her and say, what were they like? How, how did they treat you? Because she was my assistant. She wasn't going to make the hiring decision. She was way lower on the totem pole. And this person was going to be if they got the job. And it could be a deal breaker. <laughs> I mean, there were some who were all smiles and wonderful with me. And then they treated her terribly. And then there were others, she'd say that, well, they are fantastic. And I always tuck that away as a, as a lesson or watch how people treat a waiter in a restaurant or I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I totally agree with that. And I think that's, 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 that's using common sense in terms of how, how to identify the people you really want to have on your, your team. You know, um, I always did the same thing. That's why I always, if I was ever going to interview anybody or, or hire anybody, I always wanted to, to interview them over dinner. And I usually wanted their spouse there. You can learn a lot from their spouse as well. They were married. Um, and you know, because I think you can observe how they not only interact with you, but how they interact with other people. But I also had another really simple question that I would always ask myself whenever I interviewed somebody, which is, would I want my daughter to work for this person? Hmm. And if I couldn't get to the yes on that one, never happened. Interesting. You know, you know, but I, I, you know, would, would, you know, my daughter was younger at that time and coming out of school, would, would I want her working for this person? And, you know, it's a very good question to ask or ask the question, would I want to work for this person? Right. Is he somebody that I, at a different stage in my career that I could learn from? Would this person make me want to go to work every day? Okay. It's, it's a big mindset shift because usually by definition, you re, you're recruiting someone who's going to work for you. And so you're looking potentially for the, all the things, how they're going to help you. But if, but if you really want that ripple effect of culture in your organization, they better be someone that other people want to work for. So it's a tough, it's a really important thing to remind yourself of. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've never seen anybody get anything big done by themselves. Okay. Right. So you ultimately, you got to take people with you to, to get things done. And so, you know, even if you're at the top of the organization interviewing somebody that's going to work for you, if you can't come to a conclusion that they're going to be able to motivate the people that work for them, you're, you're, you're heading towards a, a bad hire. I really like what David says here about observing leaders and learning from them. You can do that in your own workplace, of course, and it's also helpful to learn about great leaders from the past through reading books or watching documentaries. But regardless of how you do it or whom you study, I think it's important to focus on lessons from these people that make sense for you. As David says, you need to be comfortable in your own skin. So if a particular leader has a style or mannerisms that you admire, but are ones you could never authentically pull off yourself, don't bother trying. 
And the question David says he used to ask when hiring someone, would I want my daughter to work for this person? is pretty great and a terrific way to cut through the noise when making important and difficult decisions about bringing someone new into your enterprise. Turning back to our conversation, I had to talk to David about one of his career achievements that I didn't want to go unnoticed. It has to do with a salty snack of all things, and it's one that also provides a great lesson in leadership. I can't let this interview go without giving you credit for helping create Cool Ranch Doritos. Cool Ranch Doritos played a very important role in the lives of many, including myself. Uh, I, 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 I've, I'm over the phase now, but you told a story about how that came about. And you're at Frito-Lay at the time, and you're trying to grow the business. And instead of hanging out in the snack food line, you went to the refrigerated, you know, the, the, the salad dressing. Can you just quickly talk about that? Because I think it's a really instructive example of how opening your mind, being a learner can create one of the all-time great products. Cool Ranch Doritos. Well, I was working on Doritos at the time and, and uh, the, the brand had kind of leveled out. The big popular flavor that had, had really grown the business was uh, nacho cheese Doritos. Okay. So we felt like we needed some news some, to, to inject into the, into the Doritos brand. So we needed a, I wanted to get another uh, line extension or a flavor extension. So I said, guys, let's go to the grocery store and let's just walk the aisles. Okay and see what's going on, see if that can get, be a spur of inspiration to us. And sure enough, we, we walked down the salad dressing aisle and we saw geez, the, the, the flavor that was just growing leaps and bounds and had lots of news and lots of facings, which is another indication that it's selling a lot. It has more, 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 more space than a grocery store, was, uh, was ranch dressing. So I said to myself, geez, you know, what if we put a ranch flavor on Doritos? So I, I went back and I called Dennis Hurd, the head of R&D at, at uh, Frito-Lay and said, hey, do you think we could make a ranch flavored Dorito? And he says, yeah, I definitely do. So, um, you know, they, they came up with uh, uh, they, they, a flavor system and man, those, those cool, those Doritos were incredible when they came to the ranch flavored Doritos. And then we wanted to give it a name. And we learned there from nacho cheese Doritos. We could have called it cheese Doritos, but that didn't have uh, that much of a cachet. So we wanted to put a unique image onto a known quantity. Nacho cheese was nacho was the unique image on on cheese at the time, which was the known quantity. So okay, we need to put something on ranch to give it sort of a, a unique image. So that's when we decided to call it Cool Ranch Doritos. Um, I love that. But th th I use that example all the time because you know most people when they're looking at their business, they look within their own category. Yes. And they, they would go to the snack aisle to see what's, if there was anything new. Okay. But I, I think that the great learners are pattern thinkers. They look at what's going on in other categories and then say, Oh, how could I apply that to my business? Okay. And you know, that that's what we did with cool ranch Doritos. And, and by the way, uh, one of the things we did at, when I was running marketing at pizza Hut, we stayed within the category and we went to uh, California Pizza Kitchen and California Pizza Kitchen at that point in time was was the, the hottest new concept in the restaurant industry. I, and they had I remember. individual pizzas where they had barbecue chicken pizzas, Thai chicken pizzas, you know, BLT pizzas, all this stuff. So we went and I took my team there and we ate 
you know, all these pizzas and we love the creativity, but we didn't have a lot of those toppings on our make table at Pizza Hut. So I asked the question, how could we do what California Pizza Kitchen is doing, but, but do it in a way that would work for Pizza Hut? Okay. And so we said, well, we have a lot of pepperonis on our make table. So we created, we doubled the number of pepperonis and created pepperoni lovers. Then we put, we have a lot of meat and then we created meat lovers and then cheese lovers and veggie lovers. And we created the lovers line of pizzas, which is still the most, the biggest selling line of pizzas in, in pizza today. But that came from pattern thinking. It came from learning what a competitor was doing and then saying, oh, okay, I can't do it exactly like them, but we can do it this way. And that would be unique to us. And that was very, very successful. Well, and it's, it's interesting to think about, I think, because that, that's a way to be successful in business. And I think some of it applies to life in that one of the things that keeps people from being positive and optimistic is they feel like they've run into dead ends and they've done everything they could possibly do in this part of their life. And they're not thinking about these other possibilities. I mean, quite literally walking down the salad dressing line created this whole new uh, segment in your business. And I'm sure it could apply to other things in life where you've run into this dead end. It's like, well, wait, let's step back and think totally differently and optimistically about a different approach. Is that something that you've applied in your own personal life too? I try to, you know, I, I get down sometimes when I'm not necessarily, sure. ready, but I always try to put yet at the end of those sentences. Like uh, I haven't done it yet. You know, I haven't learned how to hit, hit the ball this way yet. Okay. You know, and, and, uh, and, and then I try to develop an action plan that will, will get me there. Okay. And it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge thing. It's you can take little steps towards that. Okay. There's a great book that I just started reading called the uh, tiny habits. Okay. Uh, but it's just, it, it's, you know, you don't, it, you don't change overnight. It's the little steps that you take that'll get you to, to a, a, a greener pasture someday, you know, and, and, you, and you don't let setbacks get you down. No, that you look at the, that's part of that book too, is that the failures allow you to, to go forward. And by the way, when I talk to leaders, you know, some leaders, they hate to, hate to use the word failure. They don't even allow failure in their company, you know, like Shantanu Narayan from uh, Adobe. He, he, he just hates the notion of failure because it's, you know, failure, what we would call as a failure is primarily a learning experience. And, and, you know, as long as you learn from what happened, and don't repeat it, you know, then, you know, you're, 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 you're further down the line, you know, but I think that's what optimism is all about. Optimism is all about the possibilities ahead. Okay. And the possibilities ahead are, are what really drive us. You know, I, I always talked about, you know, the importance of identifying your unfinished business, you know, what's your unfinished business. Okay. And, you know, that's, that's what life is all about. Life is attacking your unfinished business I'm and going that. after it and believing that you can actually do it. Um, you know, I've got like right now I, I've started writing country songs. Okay. Come on. Yeah. I'm writing lyrics for country songs. I've written six of them. I'm going to try to do four uh, more and I'm going to try to have my own album. Now that doesn't mean anybody's going to make it. So it's not mean it's going to be on the radio, but this is something I've always wanted to do that I'd never done. I carried songs around in my head for years and now I'm writing them. That's and, great. Uh, you know, teaming up and collaborating with people who can play 
the the music and you know in you know together we're we're doing some great stuff. You know, there's a great line. You know, see the world the way it really is, not the way you want it to be. People say that. Okay. Well, okay. You got to understand the way how the world really is, but never give up on the way you want it to be. Exactly. Okay? And you know, and that I, that's why I think that phrase is not quite right. You know, see the world the way it is, not the way you want it to be. See the world the way it really is, but make it the way you want it. To exactly. Be. You know, well, I can't think of a better way to end our conversation. You said earlier that that time is our most important asset. You've given me not only time today, but in in uh, past projects I've worked on, and you were the one who introduced me to Tim Schur, who told me how to do this podcasting thing, and you've been a huge help to me and and inspiration to me. I've loved your books. I was excited to learn even more about the leadership training that you're working on today, and now I know you're writing country songs. So. I know you're going to keep inspiring me and I'm sure you're going to inspire everyone who listens to this podcast. And I, I can't thank you enough. Well, Bill, I think you're, you're doing God's work there. You know, I think it's really is great that you're focused on, on optimism. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the world needs more of it. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate everything you're doing and thank you for having me on your show. By the way, you're a very good podcaster. You know, it didn't take you <laughs> long to figure out how to do it. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> I, I, I'm learning from the best, including yourself. So thank you very, yeah. very much. Take care. All right. Thank you. See the world the way it really is, but make it the way you want it to be. Great advice. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky podcast with David Novak. I can see why I consider him to be such a remarkable and inspiring person. It's amazing to see that after all of his business success, he goes on to launch his important work on leadership study and training. And if that's not enough, now he's writing country songs. Could David Novak be the next Garth Brooks? Maybe, maybe not. But I'd say it wouldn't be smart money to bet against him. Thanks for listening to this conversation. And if you can take a few minutes to leave us a rating or review to let us know how we're doing, we'd really appreciate it. I hope you'll check out other episodes of Blue Sky and also consider following The Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>